I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. This never happened to the other fellow. For your eyes only, darling. Whoever she was must have scared the living daylights out of her. What of you? Hello and welcome to a new episode of For Your Ears Only, Optimism Vaccine's ongoing James Bond podcast series. I'm Jack Eason. I'm joined by Jake Trapila. Jake, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing okay. Jack, how are you this afternoon? Pretty, pretty good. You know, we're, we're, we'll, we'll get to some rough stuff later on, but you know, right now I'm feeling a little bit pretty yeah. happy. It's all good. Let's get the good out of the way right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's the spirit. <laughs> so, um... Okay, I guess we'll just dive right on. I mean, uh, we're, 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 picture yourself in 1997. You've just gone to the cinema to watch the latest James Bond epic, and it yeah. is Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, more than likely, you probably uh, snuck into this movie after seeing Titanic. Uh, yes, which indeed. released the same weekend. But <laughs> um, yeah, so here we are. We're back. We're, uh, we're in the... Uh, we still have a few, quite a few episodes left, but uh, we're now in the end game as far as uh, our Bond countdown goes. We have a new film coming, No Time to Die. There is a trailer. There is now the song by Billie Eilish has just been released during this recording. And um, yeah, it's only a matter of uh, weeks at this point. But uh, yeah, we got to get through the rest of these. So yeah, as Jack mentioned, it's 1997. We're reviewing Tomorrow Never Dies. This is uh, Pierce Brosnan's uh, second outing as James Bond, second out of four. Um, Jack, had you ever seen this film before? I had seen this one before, although it's it's been a while. I think I caught this on TV probably in 2000 or so. So mm-hmm. didn't remember too much of it. And uh, if I'm being honest, I'm not sure I remember much of it now. I watched it earlier this week, but we'll try it. We'll try and cover the ground. Yeah, this is one that I somehow missed during my formative Bond years. Like I mentioned, uh, Goldeneye was the first one I ever saw. I completely skipped over this one, and then I came back on, and I've seen all, all of them since uh, the world is not enough in theaters, and watched all the other ones in my catch up. But yeah, this is one of technically one of the last films that was released relative to or one of the last films that I've seen for the first time relative to its release date. But, um, yeah, uh, I'll just get right into it. I'm not uh, a fan of this movie. I think it has a lot of problems. Um, I think it's maybe one of the worst Bond films, if not the worst one. Um, it's, uh, and I think my problem with it is that it just really, really lacks a lot of imagination um, as compared to previous efforts. And I think GoldenEye rides on such a nice high that this is really just such a sad formulaic bond film to follow it is it's a disappointment following up from golden eye um as the and then you mentioned goes head to head with titanic at the box office although it actually did pretty well on the whole despite that but um yeah this was a a, i was reading up about this afterwards and it's it was a pretty troubled production and i think that's not surprising at all looking at the final film Mm -hmm. um mgm had just been acquired by a new billionaire uh, mm. as they're wont to do and he he insisted they have a bond film released to tie in with a public stock option <laughs> event huh. which uh, it truly demonstrates that billionaires have zero self-awareness uh, that a a film series known for egomaniacal billionaires trying to destroy the world and a man who always stops them and uh here we have a, a bond film being delivered on spec for a maniacal 
uh, billionaire. And uh, yeah. that that was a, a problem. The original script for this apparently was going to use as its backdrop the 1997 handover of Hong Kong back to Britain, or back to China, rather, from, from British rule. Um, that was nixed at some point, um, apparently in part because Henry Kissinger himself uh, <sighs> suggested that, that that would be a problem politically. And I couldn't really give a shit what Kissinger has to say about anything. But I suppose it does. It, it probably might have been a good idea for them to move away from it because the Bond films tend not to posit themselves too much in real-world events. There's a few little pieces here and there. But um, generally speaking, James Bond does not exist in our timeline. Um, no. And so, so having a film that is tied to 1997 exactly would be kind of confusing and strange. So I suppose it's probably a wise enough idea that they nixed that idea. But what it did mean was that they basically had to completely rewrite the script, but they had a release date already set. They had some actors hired. Um, so Jonathan Price and Terry Hatcher apparently came on board here. Anthony Hopkins originally had Jonathan Price's role as the main villain, and he apparently left after three days because there was no script. Um, <laughs> and he was just like, oh, maybe not. And he went off and did uh, Mark of Z- Mask of Zorro or something like that, um, which I'm not sure might actually have been directed by Martin Campbell. I don't I, recall. It certainly was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So so Golden Eyes, Golden Eyes director. He just he jumped over to another film, which. Um, so other characters came in everything was changed around and I think that really gives you the, it shows in the film um, my, my feeling watching Tomorrow Never Dies is not not that it's um, not so much that it's messy it's it's um, you know it's almost worse than messy like you say it's formulaic it's clumsy yeah. it just sort of it, it, there's no spark here there's some really clumsy exposition early on in the film so so clumsy that i kind of couldn't help but notice it repeatedly you know they'd ask they, they keep asking people like what do you know about the most famous man in the world and they tell you everything they know about the most famous man in the world it's like this is clearly for our audience benefit not you know yeah you, do, you know you wouldn't ask a secret i mean at one point in the pre-credit sequence um literally uh they have uh, what's his name Henry Gupta who's one of the bad guys yeah shows Ricky up. J yeah Ricky J he, he shows up and uh, and Colin Salmon playing um, playing one of uh, an intel Robin, guy Robinson yeah yes Robinson and I I you know so Colin Salmon another one of those those great trained British actors kind of just showing up for a paycheck I feel like a bit of fun um, yeah. points out that you know looks at him goes and points out to M that he's he's a techno terrorist and pretty much invented the field and it's like would would you really have to tell M the head of British intelligence about a man who invented techno terrorism it's just these really clumsy moments throughout the whole film and yeah. th- that's kind of my takeaway from the film is it really it feels like it was just kind of cobbled together as quickly as possible and just kind of everything was hammered down like all the uneven edges were hammered down as quickly and as kind of uh, pragmatically as possible and the final film just sort of it just it's just sort of there it just kind of happens there's the stuff you expect to happen happens in terms of explosions and girls and intrigue but like yeah there's there's very little to distinguish this yeah and one thing i just watching this again i've only seen this film a total of handful of times but um Watching it, it feels really just kind of stitched together like a Frankenstein's monster of a movie because these films, they're not necessarily renowned for their action sequences, but there are definitely some highlights that we've seen. 
the action in this movie is very poorly put together. Um, and like I think I feel like a lot of it is made in the cutting to try to increase the excitement. It's very it's it's really just a, a blizzard of cuts as soon as Bond picks up a machine gun and then gun, there's gunfire coming in from all directions, but there doesn't seem to be anybody getting shot and um, and there's like a uh, there's like a fight sequence where. Uh, Bond is running through a, the newspaper factory and he, he jumps on like a little uh, gurney on the ground or like one of those little dollies to move paper and he's sliding on the ground and it like I, if it were to just play out in a wide shot he would be going very slowly and it wouldn't look exciting so I, the director Roger Spottiswood is like doing everything he can to kind of cut around everything all the problems and make it exciting yeah it, yeah it certainly it, it's I, I don't know yeah how much the, the action sequences were were pre-planned or had to be changed along with the script but um yeah, yeah it, it definitely it's it's a strange film it has some nods to like i felt some nods to uh goldfinger in terms of i mean we'll get into it a little bit more but like terry hatcher's character and her premature death mm. um is a little bit of an unusual twist which i think you know owes itself to goldfinger and there's a few other inspirational parts but yeah it, it's kind of it it doesn't feel like a playful homage back. It feels more like it worked before. We can just yeah. kind of shoehorn it in again. But I suppose we open with the pre-credit sequence at a international terrorist arms bazaar, which they apparently have in I, I don't know located the, on the Russian border. And this it, is full text that it tells you. It doesn't say like what country we're in. It literally says an arms bazaar on the Russian border. Yes, and that's something that struck me as well. I did, like in terms of just the the tonal kind of awkwardness of this film. That text is like the whole film is going for like this this kind of techie thing. Like it's all about satellites and yeah. you know internet oh, media. This movie and, uh, is funded by GPS. Yeah, yeah, like, like GPS and and the opening credits are all techno stuff and everything. And mm. then the text introducing the locations just looks like it's from a nineties just TV movie, just like. I don't know. It, it, like, it's just one of those things where typography can make such a difference, and in this yeah. one, it just makes just the wrong impression throughout. And like you say, it's and it's just very bluntly kind of just let you know here's the place. Look, this is what we're doing. We don't have time to explain it to you. And also changes color. Sometimes the text is yellow. Sometimes it's blue when introducing places. I don't know yeah. why. Um, but anyway, yes, we're in the international arms bazaar, um, and James Bond is there to stop him, but. Uh, his intel, he's feeding intel back, and uh, they realize that it's a, who I don't know. The admiral of the British Army decides he's just going to yeah. nuke them because that's he, quick and easy. He's going to fire a missile from an off sea tor- from an off sea U- uh, UK sub, and it's going to basically blow up the arms bazaar. But Bond's intel shows them, hey, there's some nuclear nuclear torpedoes there, that's so right. don't shoot. But he, they've already fired the missile, so Bond has to hijack the plane carrying the nukes. And fly to safety while the rest of the bazaar is destroyed. Yes, um, yeah. And in, in typical Bond fashion, of course, the failsafe on the the missile they launch fails, even though like it's one of those strange <laughs> things. But um, yeah. <laughs> what, what what strikes me about this piece, and I don't know if it was conscious or not, is because we we remarked in Goldeneye that there was this pronounced increase in violence mm. compared to previous Bond films, and there was like six years between. The Timothy Dalton. The Timothy Dalton films are like quite gritty violence, a very different kind of a violence to the other Bond films. And then right. Pierce Brosnan showed up in the mid nineties, um, 
and kind of at that stage film had changed quite a bit popular film had changed quite a bit and it just turned into not gritty violence particularly but just like body counts were fine you could just spray people down with machine guns oh, as, long, yeah. and as long as there was no blood it was fine exactly. you know and, and goldeneye has just a, a staggeringly high body count um for our regular listeners you know we, we we keep track of bond's kills and goldeneye just shattered all the records it was just by far away bond just killed like 15 or 20 more people than he never killed before in a movie. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting in this one, I noticed for the pre-credit sequences, there's a lot of destruction. He's blowing up a lot of stuff. There is not one on-screen person dying, though. And I, I'm, yeah. I wonder, was I wonder was this a conscious effort to tone down that people complained? But then I don't know, because the rest of the film is still kind of on the golden eye league of explosions. And it, it maybe just, I wonder if it's something that it's kind of like... In terms of organizing things quickly, it was easier to blow some stuff up and edit, choppily edit it rather than, you know, block actors particularly and, and do, you know, other stunt stuff. I, I, I don't know. But it, it's just a strange contrast in terms of compared to compared to how Goldeneye rolls. This one, it's really just the trucks. There's virtually no one visible. It's just explosions and he gets in a plane. There's the pilots, I suppose. But that's, you yeah, know, um, the two guys in two the planes. Pilots. Yeah. But anyway, but, yeah, it just just a it, there's just a different feel, and it it just feels a little bit kind of hectic and unusual, I suppose. Like if Bond is supposed to be calm and collected, this movie isn't really that. Yeah, no, it's 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 a good point you bring up, and I think bloodless max mass executions are kind of what defined '90s action films. Because, like I said, there's really just there's literally in this movie sequences of bullets flying everywhere. But yeah, nobody seems to get shot uh, unless it's you know part of the part of the screenplay. It's every there's so much collateral damage without any actual human death, and yeah, Bond is just sort of, uh, I guess, crippling the the means to, to escape the incoming explosion rather than shooting anybody outright. He does hit a few people. He hits a guy in the face for wanting to light a cigarette, and uh, this is a this is we're now in the era of the non-smoking Bond films. That's um, right. But yeah, he you know, hijacks the the plane, and there's the the pilot, the co-pilot sitting behind him, tries to garrote him to death. But with like a very goofy maneuver, he ejects him into the seat of the plane, flying above him, uh, and which then flies off and blows up. That's um, a standard RAF maneuver. The old yeah, uh, the old eject one guy into the other plane trick. Yeah. 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 So, anyways, Bond saves the gay. He flies off. The screen literally cra cracks like grass, and then we hear this.
All right, so this is a bit of a Shell Crows theme, Tomorrow Never Dies. Uh, Jack, the first, any, uh, the first uh, song called Tomorrow Never Dies in this film. I'm very confused the fact they they wrote two. They had a competition for they this, They had apparently. several people came out. Uh, Pulp did one. Uh, I'm blanking yes, on the other Etienne artists. Yes, did it, which is weird. Yeah. I can't even imagine what their one is like. But yes, um, I, I quite like this theme tune, I gotta admit. Um, and in, in an odd way, I feel like I quite like this film... Or this theme tune because I think Cheryl Crow honestly just sells it. Yeah, um, I don't know what the lyrics are. I don't know any like I, I don't really recall anything about the song. I just remember that Cheryl Crow really just kind of like, you know, it works. Um, why not? I do enjoy it quite a bit myself. Um, it's people aren't as fond of it, but uh, I'm not a I'm not a Cheryl Crow fan by any stretch of the imagination. But I really I really do dig this track. I think it's one of the more enjoyable pop songs in the canon. And and also, uh, this is a note for our editor, Steve. If you could, I, I really enjoy the end credits song, which is Katie Lang's Surrender, which was the original opening credits song. Um, so, if Steve, if you could drop that at the end of this episode, that would be great because it closes out the movie. There you but, go. Yeah, yeah, that would be perfect. Yeah, Katie Lang apparently was not famous enough or something, one of yeah. their complaints, which is like, Katie Lang's pretty famous but anyhow yeah. so it goes there was some some bash up there in terms of what they wanted and um, i will say i quite like the theme tune i'm not a fan of these opening credits which are frankly yeah. I, they're they're going for like the techno kind of like techno thriller thing and it's all x-ray and it just it just looks like a shitty tsa reel yeah like it's it looks- really awkward with a little lawnmower man thrown in, there's very, very lawnmower man feel. It's yes. like it's like is there's X-ray shot. I I like the see-through guns um, with the bullets loading in the magazine, but uh, the 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 dancing women who are like CG renditions, and then when they're they're like X-rayed when a TV flies over them, it's very very dated. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, you kinda... and it's dated. It's like I understand CG obviously can date very poorly. But but that that isn't my issue. With I just feel like it's poorly conceived. It's like it's like those credits announcing you know those title lettering, you know, saying where we are. It just it doesn't carry the feel of the film. I don't know. It's just not conceptualized in an interesting way, and it just yeah. ends up looking. It, frankly, it looks cheap, and I'm sure it wasn't cheap. So <laughs> that's that's your your worst case scenario. No. Um, but quite, in any quite case, a bit of money went into this movie. Oh, I'm, oh yes, quite a lot indeed. And uh, when your billionaires want you to to make a film, they're only, they pay extra to rush it along, and that's what mm-hmm. happened. But um, so we we get through our, our title credits, and we end up. Where do we end up? I don't even we, remember where this movie starts. We're on the USS Devonshire oh. British ship, which is just oh, outside right. of Chinese waters and international waters. Uh, they're then attacked by a pair of uh, Chinese MiG planes, and then uh, they're destroyed by a remote-controlled drill that came from the ocean off of a stealth ship. And here we, in quick succession, meet our henchman, Mr. Stamper, and uh, we meet our main villain, uh, Elliot Carver, played by Jonathan Price, who was just nominated for an Oscar for playing a pope. That's right. Well, recently, yes, he's, yeah. he's no pope here, I'll tell you. No, he's Satan. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, a. I think he's aggressively hammy in this movie. Um, and I, I know, I know with a, a lot of, you get, it's, a, it's, this very much a standard with the Bond series. You have an acclaimed actor come in to perform a villain role. Sometimes it can, they really sink their teeth in it and enjoy it in a way like 
Christopher Walken does in uh, A View to a Kill. And then sometimes they just go grossly over the top that it's really just kind of irritating. And that's exhibit A here with Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, definitely. Um, and and also a separate of Price, who I mean, I guess we'll, we'll talk more about as the film goes on. Um, this also introduces the what i feel is a kind of unwarranted complexity and uh somewhat confusing element of the plot here because we have this torpedo drill mm, i don't understand yes. what that's particularly for so it's like a torpedo the shooter so so the chinese makes fly overhead to warn the the hms devonshire that it's in chinese waters the hms devonshire insists that it's in international waters so it's yeah. there we have a face off between both of them and it will turn out that uh, they have been hacked and they are indeed in Chinese waters, uh, but they don't know it. Their GPS has been has been surreptitiously uh, made to to fa- falsify their position. And the right. idea behind this is that Elliot Carver is going to create an international incident between England and China um, so that he can break the news of that um, on his brand new satellite, international satellite TV network. But he also shoots the ship, not with a torpedo or anything that would just scuttle it nice and efficiently and blow it up, but he, he uses some kind of a ginormous drill yeah. um, torpedo. Is there ever an explanation for why that exists? I I have no idea. I guess it was just a way so. to, to sink the ship without the use of uh, any sort of armaments or anything, but it's it's just really dumb. Yeah, it's it's very strange, and I mean they they note they and there's so much exposition in this film. They they really painstakingly explain their plans, which makes it all the more confusing that their plans don't make any sense when you like if you pull back and construct them. It's like why are they doing half of this? None of this makes any sense. Um, the the ship England doesn't know where the ship is either. That they're being lied to too. So it's being sank somewhere where no one will be able to find it. Um, yeah. So why you know why does it matter? Well, oh, that's right. They steal a missile off the ship. They steal a nuclear missile off yeah. the ship by using somehow using the drill. What well, they could have done that after they sank it. It didn't make any sense. I don't. Okay. Anyhow, moving on. It's, well, it's the whole thing is that you have to remember this whole thing is it's about ratings. Elliot Carver, our villain, is a media mogul. He runs several. Uh, uh, news programs, uh, magazines, newspapers, basically everything but the internet. And so a lot of his stuff would be basically rendered obsolete within a few years. But I digress. Uh, he's His goal in this movie is to, this is where I come in and say that this movie is uninspired because the ultimate goal, and this is the line he says verbatim at the end of the film, is that he's doing all of this so that he can have exclusive broadcasting rights in China for the next 100 years. It is such a lame, uninspired it, plot if I've ever heard kinda, one. Kind of reminds me of a much better techno thriller named Black Hat, which has yes. numerous other things. And then in the end, turns out to be about stealing tin or something, a property like mining rights for a tin mine or something. I, I don't remember exactly. But yeah, just sort of like he's willing to open up nuclear war and various other things so that he can eventually just leverage broadcast rights in China. And I'm pretty sure you can just bribe people to get that. Yeah, fundamentally. but no, he, he's doing all this. And it's also, he, this also not only does he take in the missile, but he's also using um, Chinese machine guns to gun down the British sailors in the water. That's right. Um, so that it looks like, oh, the survivors were killed by Chinese gunfire. So he's trying to start a war and he's also trying to be the first guy to report the war. 
So he's literally he's literally creating fake news is what this it's film is about. And here's the other thing that's confusing about this because they, they lie to Britain about where the location of the ship is so they can't find the ship. But then they shoot the seamen with Chinese bullets. But yeah. how are they going to find these bodies if they don't know where they are? But then they record it like they're going to broadcast it as news. But then where's this news source coming from a government would check that who you know who what's the camera you know um because yeah. they're not being shot by chinese people uh the gun is by stamper who's a german gentleman um it's an extremely convoluted kind of meaningless yeah. fiasco of a plan honestly and it's it sort yeah. of yeah it, it, there's there's various slights of hand and distractions here with stealth ships and nuclear weapons and, you know, a GPS blocker and things like that. And yeah, it just all comes down to kind of like the businessman is, is wants more business. And yeah, it's very uninspired, very strange. And of course, Elliot Carver is, I guess he's supposed to be based somewhere between like Rupert Murdoch and Robert Maxwell, two media yeah. moguls. And Maxwell particularly, they overtly reference... Um, because he died in real life falling off his yacht and later on M frames uh, Carver's ultimate death the same way. So I suppose we're supposed to make that connection. And also Maxwell stole a bunch of money from his employee's pension account, which is small <laughs> fry compared to starting a war with China, I suppose. And of course, also um, with William Randolph Hearst, I suppose yeah. he's over. He's 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 openly credited for his his contribution to the Spanish-American War with his you furnish the pictures, I'll furnish the war. Um, so they they have a bunch of these things, and it, it's it's frustrating because it could be interesting. I feel like this happens a lot in Bond films. Like it feels like you it could be interesting, and it just kind of never really goes anywhere. It doesn't. Right. It gets too bogged down in weird kind of tropes and conventions of of the, the film series. Um, where Carver has to, like, because he, if he, if he was just a white collar criminal bribing government officials, James Bond isn't going to get involved. So he has to, he has to have a missile somewhere, and it just all goes very silly very quickly. Yeah, had Elliot not reported this uh, news so quickly, I think he reports it the next day that nobody would have been onto him. Nobody would have said, "Hey, how did you know all this happened?" So yes, yeah, that's it, a repeated thing in there too. Is yeah, he like he publishes the news. Sometimes before anyone else knew about it, even before the governments know about it, and the governments can check this. They even make comments. It's, it's which again the clumsiness that comes through. Right. Um, it's a very yeah. It's silly, and and this kind of brings in James Bond. Is we 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 were introduced to James. He's at Oxford banging a professor because of course yep. why not? Little um, Danish professor. So so he's he's called back by Money Penny. He um. Does he meet Money Penny in person in this? Is she in the car when he gets in there? Maybe he is. She yes, is. So, so they do meet him. She's person. in the yeah. She's in the front seat preparing his um, travel documents, and he's being debriefed by uh, M and That's Robinson right. in the back. And yeah. there's a very and there's a very clumsy thing where M asks James Bond, "What do you know about Elliot Carver?" And he tells him what he knows, which is clearly for right. our benefit because like it, it would be the equivalent of you know two super spies and like have you ever heard of jeff bezos you know it's like yes clearly everyone would know about this person if you know all right yeah so um after their after that whole sequence in the car they uh bond goes to elliot carver's uh party where he's playing to launch um i guess it's his new uh i don't know if it's a new channel or his new he's he's got a basically got a news promotion party that he's going to it's yeah it's a new new his it's his satellite news channel right. i guess like sky news or whatever and it's going to be international like it's cable news it's 24-hour news yeah and that 
Yeah. And so uh, I think before this, though, I think he goes to Avis Car Rentals and gets his new uh, BMW 750 from Q. Uh, this is a four seater and this actually has the option of uh, remote control from Bond's phone, uh, which may be something we're only a few years away from a remote controlled car. But yeah, so uh, Bond goes to uh, Carver's party, and there he meets uh, our Bond girl, uh, Waylon, played by Michelle Yeoh. Uh, she's also there, but we're not. Uh, n- we don't. We do not know that she is an undercover agent herself. Um, and then we also meet uh, Terry Hatcher as Paris Carver, uh, Bond's former lover and Elliot's wife. And uh, let me just say, the film at this point is really straining to have some sort of emotional connection. With uh, Paris Carver as a like a haunted lover from Bond's past, I guess you could say, but it yeah. it falls completely flat on its face because it's not earned. There's no genuine connection or even any chemistry between Bond and Terry Hatcher, and I think Terry Hatcher's performance is quite bad in this movie. Um, her, I don't know if it's the ADR or her line readings, but it's it's really just everything is off key. It, yeah, it sounds like, again, I think production difficulties played into this. Uh, there there were rumors uh, when they started off that um, the, what ultimately became the Paris Carver hat character was going to be a returning Bond girl. Yeah. Particularly a suggestion it could have been uh, Natalia Simonova from GoldenEye uh, would return as... Uh, as Elliot Carver's wife, right, and then, but but the plan was nixed because the character will ultimately die, and they didn't want to. They were afraid the fans would be annoyed at them, kind of like going out of their way to kill a Bond girl. Um, so it was changed to a new character, and like you say, they they're trying to create an emotional chemistry between them, and that they they were previously an item, Bond and and Paris. Yeah. So um, so you know, which all would have made sense if it was a returning character um i know terry hatcher noted that when she took the role just like jonathan price when they took the role they had i think the original script which was then completely axed and changed so new new script pages were coming every single day and both of those actors went on record saying that they kind of they didn't like how their characters changed in the rewrites they felt they became less interesting um, I have no doubt that's the case with uh, Terry Hatcher's character, who really just becomes yeah. a dress. Um, yeah. Who just answers. Speaking of the dress, man, 90s fashion in this thing is, ah. Christ, this MTV kind of VJ look that's circulating around there is pretty rough. I was just... Remember Michelle Yeoh in particular is like, what is that? Yeah. But anyhow. Even, I can't, I can't remember a single good-looking suit that Pierce Brosnan wears in any of his films. The 90s really were the worst. Um, they were pretty rough. I mean, they should have just put Bond in, in a grunge, like, plaid shirt and whatever. They should just, like, fully piggybacked on the tropes of the of the era. He could have had just full denim ensemble or something. Yeah. So, anyways, uh, Carver gets onto, onto Bond. He asks Stamper and his men to beat him up in a soundproof recording room. Bond, uh, being Bond, gets the upper hand, fights them all back, and then um, shuts down the power so that uh, Elliot is no longer broadcasting his uh, his his show and and uh this makes him angry um so they send bond goes back to his hotel room and he awaits with a gun and they send uh, paris carver to go see him and they have a night together um moving on from that uh bond i believe this is then the sequence at the newspaper factory where bond actually infiltrates and there he runs into wei lin herself uh, now an in an agent dressed in all leather doing some infiltrating of her own and there's this uh hectic shootout 
um, that I mentioned earlier, where Bond is on a little gurney, and uh, a lot of a lot of stuff happens here. None of it very. I'm kind of blazing past it because none, none of it's really very memorable. Um, yeah, it's sort of strange. Like he breaks in, and he just immediately he just kind of cracks to say, I, "Like I mean, they 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 apparently brought more gadgetry into this film because uh, reportedly some people felt Goldeneye didn't have enough gadgets, which I just don't understand anyone in the right mind who'd make that complaint about a Bond film. It's like there's enough gadgets overall, yeah, you know, but um." So, so yeah, among his, his gadgets, he has a cell phone that he can use to drive his car, as you mentioned, but it also has a fingerprint scanner. And so Bond goes up to the top of the, the building, the, the printing thing, and he just kind of like looks around the office. He gets in, he seems to get in really easily. Just, oh, you know, kind of realize, okay, there's a safe behind a painting. It's a fingerprint lock, so his phone immediately corresponds with that easily, opens it, finds the GPS jammer. You know, which seems like, you know, the major key piece of the whole thing. And it just feels incredibly kind of glib, you know, just so easy. And then and only then it, you know, becomes an issue that the soldiers get, you know, whatever the guards become alerted to. it. But yeah, it, it just sort of seems like they're you're rushing past it because they they kind of rush past it, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's just kind of very it's very much a perfunctory action sequence. I mean, with the with the Brazins especially, they kind of hit a, a stride of just every fifteen minutes something needs to uh, go bang, and Bond has to leap into action. Uh, you know, I like my Bond films to take their time and have have some proper investigating going, where he doesn't have to kill thirty people to get out of a room. But uh, anyways, um, he gets back to his hotel room. He parks his car in the parking lot, and. Um, he finds that Paris Carver is dead and she's been killed by Dr. Kaufman, um, played by Vincent Chiavelli. And if this weren't such a tonally bizarre Bond film, and if it went for something darker, I think this would probably be the best scene in the movie. Um, what, what did you think about this whole sequence? De- yeah, certainly. This is, um, Chiavelli's great, just generally. Um, yeah. And yeah, he's he's great, but then he's playing like a master torturer. And he, he's a master torturer, but he pretty much just murdered. He, I think he just shot Paris Carver. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't do anything. He just shoots her. <laughs> Whatever. Done. Especially so, since later we find out he's a torture ex- expert who can keep people alive for 57 hours while he's killing them. But yeah. Right. yeah he, like he, studied the, he studied the secret Chinese arts of torture, apparently. Chakra torture. Reveal later. Jesus but Christ. anyhow, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I this conference confrontation has potential um and bond is visibly shook because his girlfriend is dead his ex-girlfriend um but but yeah no i and i think when it gets most interesting is actually is when bond turns the tables on him and uh dr kaufman just says like i'm just a professional doing my job just like you you know as he's kind of trying to beg for his life yeah um, and we get a little bit of the the Timothy Dalton That's bond right. almost kind of creeping out, you know, where he just kind of says, "Yeah, you know, like I'm a professional, and that means I'm going to pull the trigger now." Yeah, um, and Bond says, "Yeah, so yeah. am I," and shoots him right in the face. It's yeah, and it, but it's just sort of like I, I didn't, yeah, it, it doesn't really there, there's not a lot of gravitas there, and that's uh, Chevelli's soul scene, yeah, which is a little bit of a shame. I think he's he's like there's potential there for a real kind of hammy silly kind of a bad guy or something even maybe more menacing if they want to lean into that but it's sort of he's just kind of an afterthought um just just feels like something they they try and pick up later with stamper who stamper honestly is kind of like a almost feels like an afterthought as well i know i know we have like an a, a, the the teutonic blonde 
henchman, henchman. prime henchman is kind of like a standard thing in Bond movies, but he feels just a little less interesting than most of them. He's like a clone Um, of a clone of uh, Red Grant. Essentially, yeah. Like, he's like, he came off the printing press himself, just Ah. as like another copy. He'll print anything Um, these days. That's oh, uh, there you go. He's a drops movie. man through a, <laughs> Oh, but anyhow, um, yeah. So, so <sighs> she's dead. Terry Hatcher's character's dead, and honestly, I didn't care. It didn't yeah. seem like it meant that much at all. Um, I, I mean, it's supposed we're supposed to to take it seriously in that Elliot Carver, you know, cold bloodedly murders his own wife, but at the same time, he's trying to instigate a nuclear war. So, yeah, I don't think his wife's a big problem to him at that point. Right. Um, the film seems to struggle with modulating severity of actions here. It's like pretty early on, it's noted that Carver is absolutely maniacally insane. So then just trying to do like family squabble in the middle of it is sort of like, who could even care less? Yeah. Um, but anyhow, so he murders him and then he has to escape again. Uh, is this with the self-driving car? This is, yeah. Bond gets into that. We, in. we should mention intercut with the Chevelli scene is uh, a bunch of goons are trying to get into Bond's car to get what he has. And it's it's kind of a humorous sequence where they're literally shooting the window and they can't, the, the Q has armored the BMW so well that the guy, nobody can get into it. But yeah, this leads into the uh, the car, the parking structure chase sequence where Bond is uh, remote control driving it from the back seat as everything is firing upon it. Um, yeah, this is this is a big act. like this. I think really, uh, as I recall, when the film came out, this is like the central action sequence. This is the one people talked about the most. Yeah. The one they you know they're kind of their advertising leaned into most because they they built custom BMWs with steering wheels in the back seat so they could you know, low down so the driver could be concealed in the back seat driving. Yeah. Um and then the the long shot of the car, there would be no visible driver. So, you know, it was kind of a it's and it's kind of, you know, a cool idea, but frankly, I feel like it's the execution is or or the idea is cooler than the ultimate execution, which isn't bad. It's it, this is certainly probably one of the better sequences in the film. Yeah. But also not you know, there's nothing here that really elevates it particularly and it's and it's a bit goofy that bond is like city he's just lying down the back thing would just run like oh it's it's pierce brosnan like awkwardly miming playing a video game yeah. on his cell phone just like <laughs> moving his thumbs around in the cars like doing j turns and things um like there, there's no there's no accelerator yeah uh, or brake control gone over it's a trackpad and you just move your finger out and the car goes forward or backwards or turns exactly apparently at, at a speed predetermined somehow yeah um, and like just a very yeah goofy it's goofy and the car is you know of course it's outfitted with missiles and machine guns which is fine but then at one point the uh villains shoot a steel cable across two pillars to try to stop the car <laughs> forgotten that and a uh, miniature buzzsaw pops out of the BMW hood ornament that is at the precisely right level to cut through <laughs> the steel cable so Bond can drive right through it. And then what's craziest of all is Bond finally gets out on the roof of this and then he uses a remote control to launch the car off the roof of the parking structure under the city streets below with danger of hitting somebody so that it can crash into Avis's rental office like he like he's cheekily returning it to the the business. But I, that could have killed somebody. Yes, it's very much endangering civilians with that one. I'd forgotten about the boss saw cutting the wire. That is such a, a pointlessly one-off specific 
gadget yeah and i do wonder like did, did it does the car automatically move it like did it detect the rope and do it or is that like is there a button on the cell phone that bond had to like move up and down to do that too because very impressive if you managed to do that but yeah a very it, it feels like just the the one extra trick like they're really trying to you know come up with something interesting and it just it never quite sticks right right yeah um well anyways i think this uh I think this leads into our halo jump sequence where Bond has to dive into, uh, basically go under the radar and dive into the Chinese waters to find the uh, the doomed um, British ship that was sunk. Uh, and that's right, they're able to hack the GPS scanner and figure out where the ship actually is. Right, right. More more techno babble business, and and this is in one of the weirdest coincidences is that Wei Lin is already there under the water investigating the crash herself. Um, so uh, this is just sort of a kind of more of just a plot convenience to get them together because immediately after they're captured by Carver and brought to his uh, office and uh, I, I don't know where they are like Singapore I guess or uh, Shanghai. Yeah, there's it's a bit of confusion with this because I think they're already uh, utilizing. Uh, it's, are they using Vietnam as Thailand or vice versa? They Something. didn't get permission to shoot in one country, so they they shot in another. Right. So I, I don't actually even remember where they are. And we we did skip over, I guess, with the with the GPS hacking. This is where Joe Don Baker shows oh, up again, yeah. right? God, wh- so we, why? we do have the the American contact recurring. Uh, he was in Golden Eye as well, and of course he was also in. He played a villain in a previous film. So Joe Don Baker, a friend of the series. Yeah, his, his third and uh, sadly his final uh, entrance in the the Bond films. This one, this one's weird because he's just like he's you know they're representing the CIA, but he's got his fishing hat on and he's a, wearing a bright Hawaiian shirt. So yeah, he does make a lot of sense as the guy who'd be there. Yeah. at this point, but any, but anyhow, he's he's he shows up and they yeah they they figure out where the ship is and as you say, go down. Uh, Michelle Yeoh is already there. It's they they swim through. Because there's big holes because of the torpedo drill thing, and they find that a missile has been has been stolen. Right. I do I do love that there's this great scene in it, um, uh, great in the bad way, uh, where when Bond swims onto the boat and he's like swimming along, suddenly a hand falls into the shot, and there's like a big shock strike on the soundtrack, and Bond looks visibly shocked, and it's like this man literally swam onto a sank, like, scuttled military vessel, and apparently it never occurred to him until that moment there would be <laughs> bodies on it. This is a very weird kind of a, considering Bond is supposed to be cutthroat and efficient, I mean, I if, why why would he be alarmed by this? I don't understand. But anyhow, neither here nor there in the grand scheme of things. Very good point. Uh, very good point. Anyways, they're uh, they're brought back to Carver's office where Stamper plans to torture them, but uh, Bond and Waylon escape, um, but unfortunately they're handcuffed together, so they make do with driving off on a BMW motorcycle, no less, um, through the streets while they're fleeing a helicopter. This is, this is after they jump off a they jump off a building. They they jump off um, a building. They tear down a giant uh, banner with giant, giant space. Banner. Yeah. There's strong Jackie Chan vibes throughout this sequence. Um, the handcuffed together, of course, like Project A yeah. has an extended sequence where two guys are handcuffed together. It's kind of it's kind of a Hong Kong action staple, like Tiger Cage and a few other films have all played with it as well. 
Um, like Project A is one of the first ones I remember. The the jumping down buildings on Jackie Chan. I, I you know I think he does it in Who Am I? But I think that might have been a year after this one. But he's he's jumped down several buildings at this point. Yeah. Um, Basically, you, know, you can't a, keep Jackie Chan in an upper floor of a building. He's got to go out a window. It's just one of his things. Yeah. It's just one of those things that are if our hero is so good, what do we do to even the odds? And this is the thing where you give him a handicap. Like I think it's also. Jackie Chan's Who Am I, where he gets his shoes taken away, so he's got to find a way to beat a bunch of guys barefoot while they're all wearing, like, steel-toed boots and stomping on him. That's right, which but, ends up with the clogs. And he gets the clogs, and those are efficient enough. But, um, yeah, so, Bond and Waylander are handicapped, or, handicapped, handcuffed together. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a handicap Yeah, it is, a, it is, yeah. Basically, this is, and so, and also, they have to use their respective free hands to commandeer a motorcycle while their two hands are just linked together, um, across the front of the motorcycle and this which is impressive because it's diff like two different arms running on a motorcycle yeah. is that's tricky running clutch and stuff clutching like gas that, yeah it, two different hands it's uh it's it's a they they it takes a little bit for them to get used to it but they seem to get the hang of it really well they do they do surprisingly well yes yeah and this really this this leads into um this is a really big action sequence and yeah again it's it's one of those sequences because they're driving through all the shanty kind of towns like thin little little narrow corridors and weaving through and going out into like these wonderful open air markets and like it's really kind of scenic kind of exotic uh exotic maybe in the in the bad way but you know i think james bond series has always leaned into that pretty heavily um but it it did strike me at this point how kind of not enamored with the film i was because even as this was occurring i was like i guess this is nice it was still just it just doesn't have that spark part of it um part of it is nice part of it um it feels really like it's on a set um probably more than any other exotic locale is uh is that it, it, it this feels like it's very staged it's very stunt show-esque um like they're they basically use kind of the same street over and over again as they just pass through it helicopter motorcycle helicopter motorcycle it's very much this is true yeah it's very much there's no real distinct nothing distinct or visually interesting about it once the conceit gets running it's it's kind of and then yeah and then it ends with the one of the worst effects shots in a bond film where we see a helicopter <laughs> with four mannequins sitting perfectly still just crash into a building and explode I counted that. I counted James Bond just murdered four mannequins. Poor, poor guys. Could have been in a store somewhere. It is, it's, there's some pretty good miniature work throughout this film. Um, you know, for, for, but you know what? I suppose it maybe it's not great miniature work. I mean, maybe I'm just enamored with miniatures because they've kind of gone out of fashion a little it's, bit. It's great. Uh, I'll say this: it's great to see miniature work. It may not always sure. be the best, but uh, but yeah, I said there there are certain points. I guess like the stealth ship, you you see the wake of the stealth ship, and it's very obviously a miniature. It's very clearly they're jostling the water to create a sense of mass and size. Um, here yeah, the the shot of the helicopter exploding, like it is on screen for way too long like you just clearly see those are four absolutely not human beings i also don't understand during this sequence that at one point the helicopter tries to kill james bond and co on a motorcycle by tipping the rotor blades down and then just running down along a thin alleyway and it's like that's a very good way to die as a helicopter pilot uh, yeah. you know if, if if your plan works the helicopter's going to crash too it doesn't make any sense um just one of those kind of weird things there's also in this sequence um and i 
can I don't know maybe I missed something I'm hoping you can explain okay so at one point the motorcycle ramps over the helicopter right and it ramps over the helicopter and it smashes through the ceiling of a building on the other side of the street and in that building it smashes in through the ceiling into a room so Bond and Michelle Yeoh are on a on a motorcycle in a room right there is a naked woman in the room um, on a bed, oh, wow. possibly having sex, but we can't. I don't. I can't see another person. Um, and Bond and Co. ride the motorcycle out of the room, making as much noise as a motorcycle would. And the woman seems to be shot in profile and smiles. Um, but there's no explanation of what's happening here. And the best I can put together from the sequence is that she is either having sex or masturbating. As I say, no other person is visible with her, so who knows? And she has just orgasmed, and it was so good that the car, the, the motorcycle smashing the ceiling and then making a motorcycle noise as it leaves, somehow she thinks all of that is this earth-shattering orgasm. That's the best I can construct from this sequence, which is probably not great that I have to do this much lifting on it. Do you have any insights? Jack, I'm going to be honest. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I did not see this woman uh, in profile or she's any She's there. I, I swear to God, she's there. I watched this on Netflix, stuck an extra shot in there. There's a woman in the room. It's even, and, and frankly, because I, I, I only noticed this because I rewound it to watch it a second time because I was like, what the hell is happening here? It's actual nudity. You could see you could see a little bit of nipple in there. This is like they went out of their way to put this in. Yes. And I think and I'm and I'm wondering mm. if they got so wrapped up in it that they put it in uh, and then realized it was too risque and cut some element of it out and it no longer makes any sense. I it's practically an art film mm. uh, for this small section. So okay, if anyone knows what's happening there or can explain yeah. if there's some kind of a joke that I'm missing, this I think the best thing home is earth-shattering orgasm. That sounds like a motorcycle. This woman, when she when she comes, she she hears BMW engines in her head, and she's very satisfied with herself. Yeah, um, I, I, but anyhow, I have no idea. I'm, I'm gonna have to go revisit that at some point. But <laughs> there you go. Yeah, hopefully I didn't make that up because if that's purely a fabrication of my mind, and I watched it twice, then I probably need to check in with some kind of a hospital somewhere. And this podcast series has truly broken me. Um. So, yeah, so from there, they, they escape, and then we get to... Pretty, do we pretty much go immediately into another fight? Because they, they undo the handcuffs, and Michelle Yeoh handcuffs Bond to something else and makes her, her escape, because she's right. still, you know, an independent agent. And then she gets in a fight in a bicycle shop. Um, yeah, well, this is... Like a, kind of, I think this is kind of like one of her... Maybe one of her covert bases of operations. Like, Yes, it must be, because, yeah, it, 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 it's kind of awkwardly put into... Because I don't know how she ends up in this... Because she ends up in... It's a bicycle shop, and there's a big martial arts fight there. Um, but then it turns out that, like, she pushes the button and a bunch of computers appear out of nowhere. So, like, I just thought it was... I didn't know the location was specifically her end point. Uh, at that, I just thought it was the location she was passing through. So it was very weird when it turned out that she was in specifically, you know, what yeah. I guess Chinese Secret Service thing. But anyway, this is um, this is a very like strong Hong Kong martial arts style fight. And uh, Michelle Yeoh obviously is this is her bread and butter. This is what she does, and this is really the only part of the film that really lets her do it. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say 
you know, it's it's not a brilliant sequence. Certainly, you know, if you were to compare it to Hong Kong levels, it it doesn't really match up. But it's it's pretty fun. It's it's pretty entertaining, and it does lead to a pretty good comic element. One of the one of the jokes that landed better in this film, where Bond finds finds her again and saves her life, shoots the last guy when she, when he's got her, um, just cause Bond has to be number one. But um, then it's kind of like she's doing all the work with the computers, and Bond is walking around. It's kind of like Q Lab with Bond, but but this time Bond genuinely doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah. You know, he always he always discharges weapons in Q Lab, but he kind of knows what he's doing a bit, and it's a joke. Yeah. Whereas this time, he actually scares himself a few times as he like leans on things and flames shoot out and stuff. So I felt that was like a little, you know, a little good variation. This film feels like it's trying to do variations, and none of them are are working. This is one of the few parts of the film that I was like, "That's actually that's kind of fun." That's I'll give him that. Yeah. You know. Give him credit wherever I can. Yeah, you can't use the uh, the keyboard with the Chinese characters. He's like, I'll be the man and type the message. And then he sees it as, on second thought, maybe you should type. But, um, yes. yeah. That's strange, yeah. That's one language he can't speak, apparently. No, yeah. He's an expert in Japan, according to his Oxford days. But, um, yeah, so uh, this is just a little bit of a, of a regroup for our heroes. They track down the stealth ship um, just basically by boating around. I think they're in Singapore. Um, and, uh, they get on board, but, um, pretty, in a pretty dumb fashion, Waylon is like kidnapped and held as the damsel in distress almost immediately. Um, and so Bond basically has to save the day and then rescue her, which is really kind of unfortunate because we've established that she's, she's such a strong and competent character. I, I, I don't know why they would have to just make her, make her the damsel in distress, it is, yeah, this whole sequence, the, the storming of the ship is, um, yeah, it, it's kind of clumsy in a few sections. Um, yeah. Just like uh, at one point, Bond Bond shoots a, a henchman and throws him overboard and Stamper just assumes that's Bond. Yeah. Uh, and, just, and then buys himself a bunch of time to just wander around on the ship. You know, it just seems like kind of elements of the, you know, they're kind of clarifying that, you know, Stamper's like a supremely efficient, cold-hearted killer and he's just kind of shown as it like just uses a dumbass for just that one scene to get some get some separation going between so so Bond can go around and plant more explosives. Um, and again, this is really where I think a lot of the plot really kind of falls apart as you start to realize how disjointed all of their different you know where if you, the film is very compelling, I get or it does a pretty good job just in terms of its urgency in making whatever they're talking about at that time seem like it's important. Um you know, an irrelevant plot point of, of, you know, Elliot Carver's grand scheme. But if you just, like, pull back a little bit and, you know, what A to B to C, what his, how his plan fits together, it doesn't really make any sense. Yeah. As we said, to, to come to eventually him brokering a peace deal between China and the West and then getting broadcasting rights and maybe a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's it's sort of a... I don't know, it's weird, but you know, it all comes down to at the end of the day, it's, it's about he's got to rescue Michelle Yeoh and kill a bunch of people and blow up a, a ship. Yeah, which, you know, he does so in Bond fashion. He kills, uh, Ricky Jay gets killed by Carver after he's outlived his usefulness, and so Bond sets off a grenade that he had stashed in a jar with a, like, a small thermite explosion on the exterior of it, which I, th- I think is pretty neat. It's a very, yeah. it's a spy explosive that's touch. At least, yeah, that's at least something that feels competently put together yeah like yeah so and then yeah a huge shootout ensues bond beats up carver and throws him in the front of his own stupid drill which is hanging 
in the rafters of his <laughs> ship. Uh, I mean, when we ask why, why does that thing exist, I think it exists solely so it can kill Carver. So it, like that's yeah. it's Chekhov's torpedo drill. Yeah, uh, kills fundamentally kills Carver, and then he stops the missile and single-handedly kills Stamper at the same time by locking his foot to the missile as it takes off, which blows them both up. Uh, and then also he saves a chained-up Waylon who was thrown into the ocean by Stamper. Um, but yeah, this this part is confusing too because Chwelin is chained up, but she also throws the explosives or the detonators to Bond, but then she can't swim. She well with her arm. Well, she's not chained up when she's on Carver's side with a gun to her head. But I guess at some point after killing Carver, Stamper found Waylon, chained her up, and I don't know how he did it, but he did it, and then brought her <laughs> chained up body to Bond, saying, "Look what I have!" Before throwing her in the water. Oh, it's well, there you yeah, go. It, things happen without much sense. And I know with a Bond film, you kind of really have to just keep moving forward. But this one really, a lot of the flaws. It kind, yeah, it, it does test your patience a little bit because it's, yeah, yeah, there's definitely, you know, I mean, I don't mind continuity errors or little bits and pieces. But at some point, it's like, did anyone know what was happening between one shot to the next? Like, it, like you say, I think editing played a key role in stitching stuff together here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyways, they bond saves the day. The ship explodes. And as the rescue is coming, this is one of our uh, tropes to end that movie where they, uh, he makes passionate love with the bond girl uh, near some sort of body of water. Um, and, yeah, and this one surprised me too, because honestly he turns down rescue, but I'm like, if they, they, there's no reason for them to expect him to still be alive. And I'm just wondering how they actually get home. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. I don't know. It's it's. If it were me, I would I would have called out to them because if they leave, he's basically like the South China Sea on his own. Yeah. So <laughs> like but whatever. Sorry, Bond. We cannot fly. This is Chinese waters. You're on your own. Yeah, yeah. Pr pretty much. Yeah. I mean, they say in the credits, Bond will return. So I guess we know he gets back. But of course, honestly, he could he could have just done it somewhere else. Yeah, so, well, I mean, we, we kind of blazed through this one, but uh, that's Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, people. I don't... <laughs> that's it. Uh, watch it last, maybe. Yeah. Um... yeah. One I don't <laughs> recommend strongly, but um, let's, uh, let's you know, as always, let's run some numbers. Absolutely. What have you got? Okay. Give me some kills. Okay, kill count on this one. I, I'm I'm improvising a little bit here. Like I said, at this, the opening sequence, he pretty much he kills the two pilots, but there's no other visible on-screen death. But he does blow up a moving truck at one point, so I just put down four for that. It's a huge, like, passenger truck. So I just said he killed four people for that. And then I just counted on-screen kills for the rest of it. And I came to a total of 28. Huh? Um, so 28 people, which drops it. It's 10 less than Goldeneye. Goldeneye, he killed like nearly 20 people before the credits started. I don't like it was crazy. Yeah. Um. So, but but uh, as I know, it's less than Goldeneye. But honestly, it's already more than the Spy Who Loved Me, which was previously the highest body count Bond film. So like the the 90s has ushered in a new reign of carnage in this series. Yeah. Um. Brosnan is in two movies is up to 66 kills which puts him two-thirds of the way, or maybe like three-quarters of the way towards Roger Moore's total uh, entirely across all of his movies. 
at Ross and oh, yeah. two movies. So yeah, completely crazy. I did notice as well, uh, I came out 28 as how many Bond killed personally, but on IMDb, someone uh, estimated the total body count of the entire film for everyone. It's 197. Jesus. Um, I, don't, I don't know how they worked that out, but I guess they're working out stuff like how many people would be on a British war cruiser when it's scuttled and stuff like that, trying to you know put it together. But um, that would technically make this the bloodiest film in the entire franchise yeah um there's a bit of guesswork in that because we don't know how many people would generally be hanging around in a blowfeld base and several of those have been blown up so you know who knows but anyhow 28 is how many bond kills he's an absolute psychopath it's it's terrible <laughs> it's true um it's, it's awful so and and we're getting a bit back up uh we went through the the eight scare bond um, who wasn't really getting in as much sex as, as previous encounters. Poor Timothy Dalton had to, you know, he's practically priest Bond. Um, mm-hmm. But Brosnan gets up to three here, which is, you know, pretty on the higher end of the average. Um, and so that, you know, that that's pretty good. And that's the Oxford professor, the language professor, uh, Paris Carver, and then Wei Lin, which he does out in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, no, nothing particularly here. Um I suppose he's twenty. Uh, Pierce Brosnan's twenty-one years older than Cecily Thompson, who plays the language professor. Twenty-one is quite a big age difference, hmm. but uh, at this point, um, we've got thirty years between Roger Moore and Melinda Havelock in For Your Eyes Only. So thirty is the number to beat. We're not even close. This is practically nice. And and honestly, between uh, Michelle Yeoh and Brosnan, it's only like nine years. Yeah. So and eleven years for him and Terry. So you know, this is that's not terrible. This isn't. No one's going to get cancelled over this one. <laughs> People are still, they'll still get cancelled. Who am I kidding? So, Somebody might. So anyhow, so as we mentioned earlier, you, you noted this opened uh, on the same weekend as Titanic. So how, how did the box office do? So yeah, this was uh, on a budget of $110 million, which is roughly $176 million today. This movie made $125 million uh, in the US alone, which accounts for about $200 million in today's money. And then it also made... $333 million worldwide, which is about $535 million today. So still, Bond was a, a very much a fruitful um, enterprise. And, that's and, uh, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, so not not bad. Not the this, It did, it did. I know, I, I saw it didn't open at number one. That was really, it made good money, yeah. but it's, it's, I think it's, the, they said it was, this is the only Brosnan film that didn't open at number one at the box office solely caused the highest grossing film in mm. history opened the same weekend yeah well times were changing people wanted a titanic so that's it yeah. they're sinking ships in both honestly yeah. Um, yeah if you want to go with that wow what a good thematic connection um all right <laughs> well uh apologies to steve and adam if there's any editing issues but uh, i think that about does it for tomorrow never dies uh do you have any any final thoughts um uh, not not really no um you- this is interesting revisiting the brosnan era i remember it being a little messy and it's just interesting to be kind of confirmed that, that is the case even right. as a you know my older self i'm you know I don't look back on this one with grand fondness. It's sort of like, nah, I kind of, it's not terrible, but yeah, you don't, you don't need to prioritize this one. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, I, I agree. I think this is one of the weaker ones, um, in the whole franchise. So, uh, not necessarily one you need to watch, uh, if you're looking to skip some, but, um, yeah, well, in in that case, uh, that'll do it for us. Uh, Jack, where can the good people find you on social media? If you wish to be found. 
No, you can find me on Twitter at RealJackEason. That's real J-A-C-K-E-A-S-O-N. Right. And you can shoot me comments and complaints as you feel necessary. Perfect. Yeah, and I'm on Twitter at uh, Jake Tropila, T-R-O-P-I-L-A. Hit us up. Tell us what you think about this movie. Is it? Is it? Are we being too hard on it? Is this your favorite, uh, Brosnan? Let us know. Can Can you explain the the lady in the motorbike yeah. gag? So please I'm gonna, help us. I'm gonna look that up as soon as it sends. But um. Yeah, uh, also you can follow our main channel at Optimism Vaccine or send us emails if you're not into Twitter at uh, OptimismVaccine at gmail.com. Tell us about your favorite Bond moments there. Um, but uh, yeah, and also don't forget to uh, rate, review, recommend this podcast. We like five stars. That's all you can re- uh, review and uh, give us uh, any uh, any kind words would be much appreciated. But uh, until then, uh, that about does it for this episode. Uh Jack, uh, hope you uh, have a good uh, rest until our next step. We'll be we'll be knocking these out. Fair, I keep saying this every time, but now we have to actually knock these out in rapid succession. Let's do it. So get, it, get on the Brosnan wagon. Yeah. Well, without further ado, from Optimism Vaccine, you've been Jack Eason. I've been Jake Tropila, and for your ears only, we'll return with the world is not enough. <laughs>